0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the AMT Tech Trends Podcast, where we discuss the latest manufacturing technology research and news. Today's episode is sponsored by AM Radio. I am the Director of Technology, Benjamin Moses, and I'm here with...
1: Stephen Lamarca, Technology Analyst. Steve, how are you doing today? Doing great. Yeah, you doing well? Doing... I am doing well. I am upset. You know, I'm on a maintenance kick lately. Yeah. Um... You know, MFG is coming up. Right. And I'm doing a small talk at MFG on maintenance. Okay. You know, in when people talk about industry 4.0 or advanced manufacturing, almost always uh predictive maintenance comes up. Okay. And you know, j- just like when digital twin, you know, I mean digital twin's still a hot topic, but a lot of people's, you know, it's one of those topics that we everybody admittedly Pretends to know about and right. really knows just enough about to to keep up a conversation. Um, but it's one of those things that needs to be explained more. And I I feel like I've wrapped my head around it enough to explain all the different levels of maintenance. OK. And I'm trying to come off as this SME in maintenance and yet admittedly. As much as I love maintenance, <laughs> maintenance isn't just for manufacturing. Right, right. It's it's part of every almost everybody's daily life, unless right. you you're one of those people that lives in a big city and you don't have your own vehicle to commute to work. Loser. Um, <laughs> but like you know, we you need to maintain a vehicle right. if you commute. Um, even if it's a bicycle, you still sure. need to maintain it. There are things to do. Bike, but um, one thing a lot of people don't think about in maintaining, um, and certainly. Uh, my fellow watch collectors, people who are getting into collecting watches, sure. admittedly, even the ones who have been collecting watches don't like talking about maintenance. That's fair. Because it's a schedule one maintenance right. with watch collecting. Even the highest end, the most advanced technology watches are level one maintenance. That's binary. I like to call it binary maintenance. Okay. Meaning, it's the farthest almost the farthest for yeah, it is the farthest from predictive maintenance or yeah. prescriptive maintenance, which is advanced maintenance uh um theory. Right. But uh it's reactive. It's okay. it's it's it, if something's broke, right, fix it. So when my battery dies
0: and I would change the battery, that's level yeah. one. Okay.
1: Yeah. It would be much more advanced, like you would have level three, like uh um uh condition based right. or or predictive if you got a notification on your watch saying hey the battery is about to die okay so i don't want to i'm not no i'm not going to say it never mind smart watches (laughs) are dumb too um but like you know i've I've, my breitling has stopped working oh no you know i i i I have two watches they're nice watches sure but so which is why i only have two of them um And one's on a leather strap. Well, not technically leather. It's a horse butt. It's the subdermal <laughs> membrane of a horse's butt uh, shell cordovan. Thanks for that. Um, but uh, w- organic straps sure. I wear in the winter. Okay. And in the summer when you get sweaty and disgusting, that's when I wear metal straps, a cool. metal bracelet, a stainless steel bracelet. And my Breitling has the metal bracelet on it. And I have come to find to when I'm getting ready to take it out of its winder that – it is stuck on the 30th and the second hand is not moving. <laughs> and I tried giving it a wind. It yeah. is fully wound. Right. And it will not start. I'll even give it like a gentle twist. Sure. That sure. hairspring will go right. for like a few oscillations and then it stops and it's like, all right, something is jammed in the <laughs> drivetrain and this is going to be dollar signs. Yeah. Um, so. Sorry, it's, man.
0: Yeah. I was thinking about that too, because I've, uh, for maintaining my cars, I, I I actually do enjoy working on my cars. Yeah. Although the modern cars have have annoyed me because of the uh, floor pan, I have oh. to remove the entire floor pan to change the oil, which I would like an access door. Yeah, but whatever. So um, at like least my, a little hatch, a hatch, something. You know, I don't need to remove half the car length of floor pan. To f-
1: oh man, I don't remove
0: fifteen screws on the Porsche.
1: Yeah, that's a headache underneath when you're on your creeper. Riddle me this, because it is a Porsche, and yeah. which is a semi exotic car. Sure, um, I got to use guys. Let's take it easy, <laughs> <laughs> but still. How, how Have you changed the oil on it yourself? I have. Yeah. Okay. How many drain plugs are there? Just one. It's really. Just, are you
0: sure it's just one? It's an Audi engine. Okay. So it uses an Audi supercharged engine and then it's electrified. So it's a
1: hybrid. So that's not a Porsche gotcha. engine in the model that I have. Okay. Cause I know like, I remember it blew my mind the first time I read that, like, uh, like the Ferrari V eights oh, sometimes right. have as much as like 12 drain <laughs> plugs that's wild and now that's also a dry sump lubrication system right, so it's right. the oil's not collecting in the oil pan yep. under the car it's it's in a sump right and I have heard a lot of like like going to car meets and car shows like 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 cars and coffee yeah um I've I've run into a handful of Audi owners that have been like yeah I used to have a an Audi with a dry sump lubrication system they stopped making them for a good reason because <laughs> you tend to run those dry <laughs> sumps dry every now and then and then it becomes a big problem that's- <laughs>
0: So in my car, I changed the oil roughly on time was what the computer said, but I don't have the tool to reset the uh, ECU to tell I notify that, which is, Ugh. I need to look around. It, it's a headache, but wait, I'll let it ride. But my wife's truck is, it's fairly easy to change her. They can drive on the ramp and it's you have to remove the floor pan also. But I'm like 3000 miles behind the, on the oil change on that because the winter, I, I didn't change the oil before the winter hit and it's been a fairly cold winter and I don't feel like changing the oil during the winter time.
1: Yeah. I know a few people with Mazdas like we know a few people. Russ yep. and Melissa both have Mazdas. Uh, my sister has a Mazda and they get a little notification when it's time for service. Yep. And the service light comes on either when they reach a certain amount of miles or when it's been a certain amount of time. Right. Not uptime, yep. but like uptime and downtime together, um, regardless of whether or not the car has been running. Right. I mean, And that, that light will come on. What's so cool about Mazda, you can access that from the menu. That's cool. From like, like before you start the car or even if the car is running, if you're stopped, you can just dig through all of like the menus and you can turn the light off yourself. What do you, is there something you actually like to maintain? Okay. So. That you do yourself. This, this, I, I'm about to be shamed (laughs) with my car. Yeah, I do very little. With OK, it. I change the air filters, That's the cool. cabin air filter and All the right. engine air filter, because there's no reason why you shouldn't be doing that. I like to the one thing I do like to maintain other than the air filters. I've cleaned the um, not the EGR um, mass airflow sensor. Oh, sure. That one's sure. easy to do. Yep, You buy a aerosol can of mass airflow sensor cleaner. You unbolt there's two bolts and then you unplug something right. You take it out you hold it in front of you about like six inches in front of the can right uh you just spray the hell out of it and then smell all those fumes and then put it back in and then you put it back in. <laughs> okay good well you you want to dr- let it dry for like 15 <laughs> uh, minutes yeah, first yeah but i just put it back in i don't start it right away right. but like i'll right. do that during lunch yeah. in the garage while you know at work right um it's it's easy to do it makes the car run a lot better like hmm. it's noticeable okay. when you get a have a dirty mass airflow sensor and then you clean it. It's yep. night and day. You don't notice it as it's getting dirtier, Sure, but like when you clean it up, it, it helps the throttle response it's wild. Hmm. Um, but other than that, I don't work on my car at all. Yep. I have so far with the new motorcycle, I've done all the maintenance myself. Yep. Now it is new. So, I mean, I haven't even done the break in service, yep. but I've added a lot of parts to it. Right. Like, um, uh, Kawasaki original equipment parts. Um, I've, you know, the instructions are good enough. Right. Even though they're really tight. Sometimes you need like a loop, I think, to read those instructions. <laughs> it's well, not like more than a magnifying glass. Yeah. But I've done that. But like, you know, Jay Leno said um, once that he likes he prefers uh, standard or naked bikes to right. sport bikes. OK. Um, you know, sport bikes have aerodynamic fairings covering everything in a naked bike or a standard bike like a Harley Davidson mm-hmm. or a. uh you know, a UJM, a universal Japanese motorcycle are uncovered. So you can see everything. He likes those not only because they're easier to work on, but because it's like uh, a, a mechanical watch that's either skeletonized or has a display back. You can just see all the the, the engineering beauty that went into it. And yep. I, I subscribe to that. Nice. But the beauty of a naked, unlike a watch, you can <laughs> work on it yourself. Yeah. Simple tools. You can get to
0: everything. That's great. Yeah. I like working on firearms. That's the coolest thing I like. There's a couple of reasons why. One, I like the solitude. It's like complete silence. Usually I work on it, usually mm-hmm. in the garage yeah. or in the basement. I try and do it in the garage because there, there are fumes involved. Um, and then I actually recently been uh, doing gun maintenance with a friend. So
1: Oh, cool. Doing Scott? That together.
0: No. Okay. Uh, one, uh, and then uh, the other maintenance is um, once you um, get it clean and yeah. get it lubed, it actually feels really nice. Like you can work the action. Right. And you can it feels significantly different than when it was dirty or yeah. like if you look down the barrel and you see like there's no debris no uh copper fouling or anything i mean not can see copper fouling but
1: you know it looks clean right when you shine the yeah. light down there It just it feels really nice i i have to be honest with you as much as i am a huge fan of maintenance in theory yep i hate it in practice <laughs> <laughs> I love maintaining because, like, you know, you brought up sh- uh, firearms, which right. is another thing. Yep. I love cleaning my Benelli, yep. but that's because all of the internals are chrome plated. Right. And chrome is the especially polished chrome. Yep. High luster chrome is the easiest surface. to It just wipes dry. You don't even need any solvents. Yep. Everything just wipes clean. Yep. Um, I haven't cleaned my AR yet. <laughs> And it, I oil it because after yeah. you put one round through it, it's dry. <laughs> yeah. Like all of the oil is like gone. I don't use oil. Either. It's it's also really funny when um, you you have an empty firearm yeah. and you're just like hanging out in the living room or whatever. Firearm's clear, unloaded, and you just rack the action really fast. <laughs> right, like you, you a handful of times, you yeah. rack it really fast, and you can actually smell the oil oh. <laughs> like burning off to the friction because sure, it's such sure. a tight tolerance system.
0: Right. Uh, Let's get it. We got to uh, have an article. We're going to talk about maintenance later on too. So we'll get into that and later.
1: Before we get into articles, yep. we have an ad read. This podcast episode is sponsored by AM radio. AM radio is the new podcast from additive manufacturing media. Join editors, Pete Zielinski and Stephanie Hendrickson and Julia Heider, as they share stories of companies succeeding with 3d printing today. Talk about emerging trends and discuss the future opportunities and potential for AM in the context of the larger manufacturing landscape. New episodes are published every other week. Subscribe now on Apple or wherever you listen to podcasts. Tune into Additive. See, the first article I have is about new charging technologies and
0: warehouse automation from machine design. Oh, charging We're, technologies. Yeah. I mean, so some of our audience may not be using warehouse robots, but the big thing is if you have a warehouse, It's probably going to be automated to using uh, AGVs or AMRs. Oh, gotcha. Right. Um, And then we have an IMR use case later on we'll talk about too. But um, it talks about the value of uh, automation and the challenges that they have on uh, using this this equipment in the floor. Um, So, you know, using an automated warehouse has 76% uh, boost in inventory accuracy. Um, uh, And I'm sorry, 99% uh, increase in accuracy as in picking the right object. Uh, and then 40% more likely to ship that same day. So in terms of the business need, right, the Amazon ship that day or two-day yeah. shipping, you've got to get it in a box fairly quickly, right? So accelerating Absolutely. from order to picking to getting into a box, obviously there's value in doing that and um, benefits to the end user. But what they're talking about is these remote vehicles have massive batteries, just like a you know EV car. If you need to charge it you can't drive it anywhere yeah so the article gets into issues on with the current state of uh the landscape of we've got all these via, um uh, autonomous vehicles or autonomous robots on the factory floor but how do we go to the next step in keeping them active keeping them engaged all the time so it, it's interesting where it looks uh, at a couple of different ways where now you apply a little bit of intelligence system so you look at opportunistic charging so similar to like if you're actually driving uh, across the world in a Tesla, right? You're not going to drive it till it's completely dead. You're probably going to drive it to like fifty percent, charge it so it charges faster, yeah, and then drive another fifty percent and then charge or down to twenty five percent or wherever the next EV charging station could be. I mean,
1: and and you know that could, that strategy could change with right. the development of batteries. Exactly, because remember, like like. <sighs> before smartphones became like the norm, right. When it was still like flip fl- flip phones and like, <laughs> you know, slides and, you know, uh, T-Mobile sidekicks and uh, Motorola razors. Yeah. You know, the, the, the rule of thumb was you use the battery all the way down to zero. Yep. Then you charge it all the way up to hundred. Right. Now with smartphones, if you want to keep that battery alive because they're the processing power, is so crazy high, if you want to keep the battery healthy for longer, um, You charge it when it hits 50 Mm -hmm. and then you charge it to 80. Right. And apparently that's the healthiest for the battery. (laughs) So obviously not a lot of people do that because, you know, it's why would you because there's life, there's (laughs) a thing called life that gets in the way of charging batteries. Exactly. But if I would imagine if you were to and if you could physically drive across the world in a Tesla. Assuming this battery technology is the same as modern cell phones, which I, I have no reason to believe it's not, right. um, you would drive it until it's fifty percent power, and then <laughs> right. charge it to eighty, and right. then continue again until you're back down to fifty. If yep. you want to keep that battery yep. working,
0: the big takeaway is you know there's a really strong connection between uh, batteries. Right, there's significant advancements in batteries. You've talked about three D printing batteries and the different uh, minerals and chemicals used to extend the life and get charger. Um, but also the charging capability. Capability, We're seeing higher voltages, higher amperages in EV vehicles to get that charge down fast. But I think one thing that isn't talked about enough is charging strategies. And it's it's going to play a lot in um, the automated robots. Of how often do you charge? Do you even charge it? If it's in the article later on, we talk about Ford, if it's at a station, why not just have the robot, the IMR plug itself in for while it's being operated? You know, there's a lot of different ways to solve this problem because it's at a machine that needs power you know, just plug itself in for a hot second and then uh, do its thing and then unplug itself. So, yeah, some random
1: thoughts. Oh, I, I, I don't envy people who are in battery development. <laughs> why not? Because so, so I have been told I was told at a very young age, I mean, early college sure. years uh, from a condensed matter physicist. <laughs> and because they are involved a lot in battery research sure. and development, sure. it's like if you want all of your effort. And your educational career, your, your climbing of the ivory tower yep. to be obsolete faster than any other major, go into condensed matter physics. <laughs>
0: sure. I, I do want to piggyback off this because it is uh, directly connected. So Ford rolls out autonomous robot operated 3D printers in vehicle production. So the title is a little misleading, I think, if you take it at fast value from 3D printing industry. So they have a uh, their advanced manufacturing center has a bunch of 3D printers. Is this your second article? Kind of, it's piggyback off the first. Okay, I have a different second article.
1: Okay, I was about to say, <laughs> man, you're putting <laughs> me in the corner.
0: <laughs> I just want to tie it to because it's directly related. So they yeah. have an. an I have have this article by the way. An industrial mobile robot, um, supporting material handling for additive machines. Yeah, but they're able to take this uh, the the material after it's printed to anywhere else in the in the facility. So it's not just you know within the cell. So if like uh, you know printing, say you have all your three D printers on one side of the building. And mm-hmm. you're post-processing the other side, which is fair because it's fairly, you know, the different cleansiness requirements for right. you both. How do you how do you material handle or logistically move one to another? Right. In additive, there's actually a lot of material handling that's not talked about. Yeah. Both on the raw material side, you have build plates, you've got post-processing needs. So Ford is uh, supporting this by uh, using an industrial mobile robot and they're, con- they're able to communicate to each other. So the additive printer yes. is able to say, hey, I'm ready. And then the IMR will come pick it up and then move on.
1: So I've got a, a, a few comments because I love this article. I And I had a discussion about this article yesterday. Um, first off, it's cool that uh, this AMR um, or IMR at uh, Ford's Advanced Manufacturing Facility, which is strictly their additive and automation, well, hands-off automation. Yeah. It's, it's supposedly entirely automated. No. Nah. Which – Is not true, and you can debunk it in the article and Ford's video in several ways. (laughs) It never shows the AMR loading feedstock into the machines. So that's – it can be assumed that that is done by a human, Right. number one. Number two, the biggest tell that that is not an automation-only facility. If you watch that video, look at the lighting in that facility. (laughs) Robots don't need that much overhead light.
0: (laughs) Uh. Maybe. I mean, depending on the vision system that they, they could be using.
1: Then they're using the wrong vision system. <laughs> it's they need don't that need light. light. <laughs> Let's give it a flashlight. Put a little uh, strobe light on top. I mean, right? I guess <laughs> it needs a headlight. If that, I don't see why
0: it doesn't have night vision. Also, I like the fact that are using <laughs> on the Ford 500. These the the,
1: the GT500? Yeah, the Shelby GT500? Yeah, GT yeah, that's yeah. sick. Um, oh, but the other thing. Uh, the post-processing yeah. or additive... Additive gets a lot of credit for having like zero setup time whatsoever. Sure, sure, And it's like I didn't realize until I did season two of Road Tripping with Steve in our first stop at the University of Texas at Austin um, uh, when when Jared, Jared Allison, uh, who is the, uh, the the Ph.D. that's working. He's the technician of their advanced manufacturing facility, yep. their additive manufacturing facility um, or additive manufacturing center. I forget. Forgive me. Let's keep moving. Um, safe. He went into. Yeah, there's zero setup time. <laughs> right. Only because all of the setup time comes after the print has been done. Right. Then you need to. Take the, the build plate with your parts on it carefully over to like a wire EDM yeah. and cut it off or chisel it off, right. which is more realistic in a lot of cases because not everybody has wire EDM. Right. You would think that if you have powder uh, metal powder bed fusion or uh, laser powder bed mm-hmm. fusion, um, direct metal laser centering, uh, if you have uh, that stuff, you probably have a wire EDM on site, but – maybe if you're a school probably not <laughs> right. because that's a very select technology right. that you, you would need to be a manufacturing se- uh, yep. center facility to have that um but they're chiseling things off and then sure. you need to move the build plate to like a milling machine right. to resurface it and then the build plate has a service life yep because you yep. have to remove material from it to get it perfectly even and not smooth but like have the right surface, so it's smooth, but it's also rough, so you can easily weld your new parts to it.
0: Right. It's I consider the build plate similar to the pink eraser. You just keep using it until it disappears
1: one day. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. You turn around. Where did the build plate go? <laughs> yeah, but like let's let's put that myth to bed. Yeah. Like there's there's not zero setup time. Just all the setup time comes after you're yeah. done with your print. It's transferred the setup downstream. It's like, it's like cooking, <laughs> you know. Just because you started in a clean kitchen doesn't mean you're going to finish with a clean <laughs> kitchen. Um, so, have you got something on shop peen? I do. I wanted to ask you what you know about shop peen. What do I know? So, we've,
0: not, uh, I think we may have had it at my old facility briefly. It's a fairly caustic and tough environment. So, they do it a lot in chambers. Uh, we did uh, shop peening for cleaning parts, uh, but we have done so. Uh, some of our machine components um, looked at enhancing the surface. Finish to increase the life of the part. So we did a lot of um, chemical etching uh, to reduce the uh, increase the surface finish. Uh, but also they did shot peening to increase the hardness on the surface.
1: Okay. So I've got an article from 3D printing industry called Research Shows Shot Peening Technology Can Increase 3D Printed Parts Strength by Up to 20 Times. Nice. 20X. That's cool. Um, that is... That caught you by surprise. It caught me by surprise. (laughs) Probably number one, because I don't know enough about shot peening. Okay. I always thought shot peening was something like, I guess, higher velocity, smaller bead bead blasting or something like that. Because I hear shot and I'm like, okay, we're talking about little beads. Yeah. That's all Little babies.
0: And they they use either ceramic balls or, you know, stainless steel balls. But in this application. Is it higher velocity? I mean, yes, it's high velocity. And are the, the beads smaller? Very, very small.
1: Okay. So that explains why in the first paragraph they also call it, uh, what was it uh, cold micro forging? Yep. Yep. Wow. And that explains forging. When I hear forging, I think okay, you're definitely making something harder.
0: Yeah, you're plastically deforming just the surface. So it's similar to like um, surface hardening with like a laser or heat treating it. So yeah, uh, just so the outside that first layer, first couple of grains on the on the structure. Gets uh, compacted. So it's um, That's so increasing cool. the uh, stiffness on the
1: outside. But it, but it doesn't do anything to the internal structure. Correct. It's only surface treatment. Correct.
0: Anywhere, yeah, anywhere you're applying. So if you have an internal hole, you could shot, shot, blast, shot, okay. paint the inside of it. But in terms of the thickness of the part, it doesn't change the microstructure and the thickness.
1: So if this was, if they're talking about, well, two things. If they're talking about a 3D printed part with like an internal lattice structure, they can't right. help it. No, they no. You can't do anything.
0: For no. It. And if you look at uh, most uh, failure mechanics, mm-hmm. it's, it's always, it's going to re- fracture at the surface unless okay. you get internal oh, defects, right? If you have a pro- pore or something like that, which is a problem additive, but most common defects is going, it's going to start at the surface. Wow. So that's why they're attacking the surface. And that's why it increases yeah. the strength of, uh, now that does the same, you know, is it fatigue failure or is it, you know, yield or uh, ultimate failure, but in the end, you know, it depends on the application. Now, that's, that's a cool article. It is also, a cool
1: article. And my next question, um, I, and it's hinted to by by the the like the cover picture in right. the background behind the title. Yep. But I take it this is on, this only applies for metal <laughs> additive, right? Yeah, you wouldn't do that to plastic or <laughs> anything else. It would just blow right through it. All right. So, has anybody ever done that? I mean, I, I know it seems pretty obvious, but for science, it sounds like something really fun to do. All right,
0: we'll ask around. <laughs> okay.
1: That's awesome. All right, well that's that was my first article.
0: I've got one on Maintenance slash unexpected failures on the shop Ooh. floor from Venture Beat. Uh, manufacturers say unexpected equipment failure is the biggest risk to meet production targets. Uh, some people say it's common sense, but when you go through the article and all the issues that manufacturers are going to face today, uh, it's a fairly broad spectrum, right? So obviously just getting material into your factory. That's a yeah. lay problem, right? Just getting uh, raw material into the factory. Um, but they also say... Um, the second is um, regulatory and compliance hurdles. Um, okay, and of course, skill uh, and workforce upscaling. Workforce issue is workforce in general is still an issue. But of all those, the third issue that the manufacturers facing is unplanned downtime.
1: Gotcha. Right, maintenance da- issues. Maintenance
0: issues, right? And to be fair, it could be a little broader spectrum not just you know the traditional sense of maintenance. Maybe not even getting a cutter in place, right? So you set up for a machine, you're missing a 5-8 five five end mill or a form cutter.
1: Or you don't tor- torque something down the spec.
0: And it goes flying out of, out of your machine, yeah. yeah. So there's it, – it. it's a broad spectrum of issues, but in the end, it's being able to keep your machine up and running with um, proper maintenance and uh, all the uh, accessories required to maintain and keep running the machine. So I thought it was an interesting look at, you know, of all the issues that they're f- seeing – i downtime is still one of the top three. Wow.
1: Cause there's a lot that can go. There's so many variables that can go wrong yep. in production facilities, regardless of like the actual manufacturing, the actual, right. like, you know, bringing stock material to part form. Right. It's still the the downtime. Wow.
0: And in, in, you know, we're talking very advanced technology. So we just talk about Ford and an and IMR feeding additive machines, great. But if you're not maintaining your additive machine or your robot, <laughs> that's one of the biggest issues. So I guess that's why there's all that
1: overhead lighting. <laughs> exactly, because somebody's <laughs> got to be able to fix it. <laughs> it's always got to be this one guy with a wrench making sure the machine's running. You know the Ford acronym: Fixer, Repair, Daily.
0: We got one on <laughs> robots also in automation.
1: Yes. Okay. So have you heard of a company, Canova? K-I-N-O-V-A? I have not. So Canova has been around for 15 years. Yep. They are a Canadian automation company. They're a Canadian manufacturing technology company. Yep. Um, They have just, in their 15 years, they have just recently released their very first, and they claim the first Canadian Collaborative robot. That's cool, and it's it's cool. It's it's relatively significant. Yeah, but it, I really wanted to bring this up because I'm a hack, <laughs> and I just want to say that a Canadian collaborative robot. Right. I guarantee you, this is the most polite collaborative <laughs> robot in the industry. It's gonna pol- they have
0: cornered the market. It's going to apologize every time it does something.
1: It's not going to kill anybody. <laughs>
0: Does a ship with? uh,
1: (laughs) Not only does it have like collision detection, and does it do force stop if it if it notices anything, but it will apologize as well.
0: (laughs) So this is a segment we just blast Canadian jokes.
1: Yeah, (laughs) you know how like collaborative robots they even slow down as they detect something approaching. Yep, bet it even apologizes then for slowing down. Not even didn't (laughs) it even it prevents the collision. Still apologizes. Sorry, (laughs) sorry.
0: Sorry for bringing this article up. Steve, we talked about Formula One. Was that last episode? Formula One. And we did talk about it last episode. I got an article from Metrology News about Formula One. Interesting intersection.
1: Heck yeah.
0: The intersection of all the great things. Formula One uh, F1 race scrutineering to check car geometry using laser tracker and 3D laser scanning. There's a couple of questions here, Steve. I need
1: you to educate me on. Okay. What is scrutineering? Scrutineering is not just Formula One yep. It's also in Le Mans But it's also not just in the highest level of motorsports Okay Scrutineering is Shouldn't be associated with racing And it shouldn't be associated with like high level motorsports It should be associated with any Anytime You Put a vehicle Out on a track Every time a v- Tracks Race tracks are very expensive Yep They are very Expensive to maintain because, you know, it's it's they're infinitely better than public roads. Sure. And they get a lot less service than public roads. Right. Um, and they don't have the beauty of the taxpayer to pay for them. So a lot of money goes into them. Yep. And even if somebody shows up to the racetrack and wants to pay a lot of money to put their take their car or vehicle out onto the track before they can. The track owners, and it, it it behooves anybody who has to maintain or anybody who is in charge of that track to the slightest degree to be all about scrutineering. Right, and scrutineering is making sure the vehicle that is about to go out on this racetrack or a racetrack isn't going to harm the racetrack. Okay, the racetrack comes first. Then you want to make sure the vehicle doesn't harm other people on the track. And then you want to make sure the vehicle doesn't harm the person who's trying to operate the vehicle. That's fair. You want to make it's it's basically a safety check. It's right. like your safety inspection, but way more intensified. Yep. Um or less so because you can take a vehicle that has not passed your state safety inspection to a racetrack and it might pass there. Right. They do things like they make sure your headlights, if they're glass, even plastic in some cases, uh, they make sure your headlights are taped off because they don't want shattered glass right. on the track. Yep. Uh, they check it your your machine for mechanical soundness. Mm. Like, is it leaking oil or coolant? Because right. they don't want that on the track um, but that you- will harm other people. It will harm the perfect surface of the track. Yep. Um, you know, th- they don't do stuff like checking alignment. But in racing, it's much more than that Not, in, in the lowest level. On like a public civilian level, they're making sure the vehicle is sound right. and not going to hurt anybody or more importantly, the track itself. Yep, It's to keep the track safe. Yep. Um, on the second and high level racing, it is to make sure that the cars are following the rules. Yep. So in auto racing, like Formula One and Le Mans uh, or the 24 hours of uh, Le Mans, um, it is – a driver, like those, are two totally different schools of race. So let's just go stick on Formula One. Um, the faster racer, race car driver, and race car isn't necessarily the fastest car in a lot. In Formula right. One, it sometimes sadly is. Sure, but in terms of driver talent, the only thing that determines one driver from another, like which one's better, is who makes less mistakes. Sure, they all do the same. Correct things, right? But the faster driver makes less mistakes. A car or one driver is passed by another because that person made one more mistake than the person behind them. Yep. Um, and scrutineering makes sure that the level, the playing field is as level as possible, right? Like scrum, scrutineering in the 24 hours of Le Mans is, um, there's actually a piece, a plank of wood mm-hmm. underneath the cars. That af- as the cars go off over this hump on the Malsane Straight, which is the back straight of the track, um, it wears away the bottom of the car. Right. If the car is too low, mm. so there's a there's no regulation for how low the car is, but there is a regulation for how much material you have on the bottom of the car. Right. So if they measure that wood at the beginning of the race and it is like, I, to some metric sure uh like like it is by the end of the race by the end of twenty four hours it is allowed to deteriorate by let's say a quarter of an inch right right I don't know what it is and sure. I'm sure it's in millimeters not inches <laughs> um if it goes beyond that that car's disqualified wow because they you know it's Let's say they're using a thinner piece of wood yep. to save yep. weight, which right. sounds crazy, but it's they do everything they possibly can. Yeah, um, Formula One's the same.
0: So in this case, what they're using are uh, handheld laser scanners to check the geometry of uh, the outside of the car. So previously, you could use measuring tape or you know what different mechanics—that's uh, awesome. mechanical ways of checking the car. But in this case, uh, what they want to do is get to a faster decision. Also, so being able to collect the data to make a decision—that's cool. Uh, so. And also, they talk about the complexity of the part. So if you've seen the Formula 1, which you talked about how interesting they look recently, it's a very, very complex surface. So making sure that there's compliance both on height and there's regulations on, you know, the overall shape and uh, what they're allowed to do in aerodynamically. Uh, verify that both before and after the race, right? They're changing parts throughout the race also. Oh, yeah. So it's interesting that they go through this part. And also, they're doing this at the race day, at the race weekend. That's so, so cool. Friday's practice day. <laughs> yeah. Saturday's qualification, Sunday's race day.
1: Yeah, there's no scrutineering that takes place like for qualification or practice.
0: um, 20 cars that you're going to check over the weekend and you
1: have to make a decision very, very quickly. I mean, there's a track safety check, but the scrutineering is almost like an event on its own. Points can't be made in scrutineering, but their disqualifications can happen during scrutineering. So I really like
0: the ability one, you know, is massive, right? Yeah. In terms of the size of the car and the environment that they're checking. And also, I mean, to be fair, laser scanners aren't uh, in general i have been uh, in the industry for a little bit. But the application into uh, open environment, right? They're in the open garage. So they're yeah. checking these.
1: Uh, no, they're out in the open. They're exactly. on the track.
0: And then they're doing this quickly enough for 20 cars at a race weekend <laughs> to get all the information and a decision made very quickly throughout to make sure the race occurs, right? I mean, you, yeah, you'll continue the race and they could theoretically disqualify you afterwards, but they want to be able to make a decision very, very quickly. So I thought this very interesting life cycle of checking apart, collecting that and getting to analysis in a non-manufacturing environment, right? These guys are just it's Formula really 1. really
1: cool, but it ties back to manufacturing because we have noticed a trend in handheld laser scanning technology yep. has been blowing up lately and it speaks volumes that Formula 1. Is adopting it. Yep. That's that's the pro. That's the cool thing. The con, the only concern that I have, and it's probably minimal, is that it could cause scrutineers and the training of FIA-controlled, uh, certified scrutineers mm-hmm. to get lazier because the technology is better. Maybe. But that's, that's with any technology. Sure. That's a sure. risk with any improving technology. But I will say, I bet you what drove the development of this handheld 3d scanning technology is the fia regulations prohibiting the use of originally tire ovens right. and now tire warmers yeah yeah so tire warmers aren't allowed anymore oh really yeah this year they're not allowed they're they're allowed before the race but okay. they have to be turned off uh, at a certain time before the race starts wow and naturally i'm sure Few of the teams have been like well the Scrutineers better hurry up then because yeah. We're losing precious degrees Yep um, but yeah like To to just elaborate On the background behind that you know Tires especially High performance tires work Their best their their main they're they're produced And developed to Provide maximum grip at like Or well to maintain grip Up to like four G's of right. lateral Force And to do that, you need to be at an extremely high temperature to keep that that uh, rubber at a glue like consistency so it can literally stick to the road and you want to keep it hot. And if you're not cornering hard enough. Like if if you're like just driving Miss Daisy around the track, yep. you're not driving hard enough to keep the tires at temperature. And when they go below temperature, they become like rocks, which and is, they just slide everywhere. Which is
0: why you see them weaving back and forth after they're safety scuffing car. tires,
1: right? They're trying to maintain temperature. And you know it's crazy; they those tires degrade so quickly. By the end of like you know a sixty lap Formula One race. You can see the perfect road where all of the cars have gone. <laughs> right. That's that's the drivers' line yep. around the track, and on the outside, it's just like riddled with like black debris, which is called clag. Yep. That's the technical term. <laughs> clag is is chips, if you would, of the the tire material. Yeah, the rubber. It's a minefield outside the. Outside the line Yeah you do not And you know what's actually really fun I'm sorry What I'm saying On like the final lap After the race The cars that have Actually completed the race You'll actually notice As their tires Are still hot They will drive Over the clag to get To keep their Hot sticky tires To pick up Some of the clag To add weight To the car After (laughs) the race Because there's a Post race (laughs) scrutineering Too To make sure That the car Is not underweight And they do that Just as a safety Precaution To make sure Just in case It is slightly underweight Just picking up those extra few ounces Of rubber on the sticky tires uh, Can keep you within spec And from being disqualified Scrutineering man Scrutineering baby Inspection Everybody hates inspection Today's episode was sponsored
0: by AM AM Radio Where can they find more info about us Steve?
1: Uh, AMTonline.org Slash resources Like share subscribe (laughs) Thanks Steve Bye. Bye everyone